0: to another episode of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're looking at the case of Robinson and Chief Constable of West Yorkshire Police. The citation for this case is 2018 UKSC 4. This is actually a case that I used as the basis for my mooting practical back when I was a tutor. The reason that I used it was because firstly it is a classic example of a negligence problem in tort, And secondly, there are strong and nuanced arguments that can be made in favour of either side. That the setting for the case is Huddersfield Town Centre also worked in its favour given that's where I was teaching at the time. Let's go back then to Huddersfield in the summer of 2008 where two police officers were chasing Mr Williams who they suspected of being a drug dealer. The police caught up with him and attempted to make an arrest but in the process of doing so, Williams knocked over Mrs Robinson, who is the appellant in this case. Mrs Robinson is an older woman, and as a result of her fall, she suffered serious injuries, and therefore brought a personal injury claim against West Yorkshire Police. These facts are relatively simple, but they throw up a wide range of issues and questions about the law surrounding negligence. For example, the existence of a duty of care itself, in this instance, has to be scrutinised because arguably the police do not owe any such duty when they are acting within the scope of their core functions. Developing this further we can also begin to examine the Caparo test that many law students will be painfully familiar with. In particular we need to look at the third element of that test which states that a duty of care should only be imposed when it is fair, just and reasonable to do so. This is important because, as the Court of Appeal pointed out, most personal injury claims brought against the police will fail because there are strong policy reasons for not generally imposing a duty of care upon the police. In other words, if the police were forced to pay significant regard to a duty of care, then this could lead to a police force that are less inclined to actively do their job for fear that they would be sued. The classic example is the 1989 case of Hill and Chief Constable of West Yorkshire, where the mother of one of the victims of the Yorkshire Ripper tried to sue the police for their negligence in catching the infamous killer. That claim was struck out as it was feared that setting such a precedent would mean the police would be more worried about getting sued than catching criminals. So many people might have the potential to make a claim that enforcing the law would begin to play second fiddle to defending their work before a court of law. A further point that comes up in Robinson is debate about the legal definition of what the police officers actually did. Was this a positive action on their part that caused the injury? Or, as the Court of Appeal found, was the injury caused by the drug dealer Williams and so this was an omission by the police? Beyond this, the Supreme Court also had the usual questions to answer when it comes to negligence i.e. if there was a duty of care, was there a breach of that duty of care, and did that breach cause the injury to Mrs. Robinson? The five justices who heard this case began by noting importantly that there is no blanket immunity for the police when it comes to negligence. There was examination of the Hill case, but this was given only a rather narrow interpretation so that, unless there are special circumstances, there is no duty of care owed to the public where the police are investigating crime. In truth, this is not much further than the actual facts of the case allowed for in Hill, and does very little to pull the police away from any general duty of care that me or you would be under. The Supreme Court then built on this interpretation by holding that the Caparo test does not necessarily apply to all claims of negligence, And this obviously includes the fair, just and reasonable condition that we mentioned earlier. In fact, it is only in cases where the traditional approach to negligence does not apply that Caparo and policy considerations should become part of the discussion. For Mrs. Robinson's claim, there was nothing outside of the usual common law principles of negligence and so there was no need to apply the Caparo test whatsoever when deciding if there was a duty of care owed by the police. From what we have heard so far, this reasoning puts the police in a difficult position, but there was some support provided by the justices through their consideration of the 2015 case of Michael and Chief Constable of South Wales Police, where it was held that there is generally no liability for omissions, or indeed for preventing injury, that has been caused by third parties. This distinction brings us on to the next question in respect of Robinson. Was this a positive act or an omission by the police? The justices held that because the risk of harm to Mrs. Robinson was foreseeable, this was a positive act and also enough to impose a duty of care. The officer knew that there was a chance that Williams would resist arrest, and that if he did, this would pose a risk to the public. Therefore, the fact that the arresting officer failed to notice Mrs. Robinson and exposed her to the risk of injury This was enough to constitute negligence. All five justices agreed with this overall decision, but Lords Mance and Hughes took the opportunity to make some distinction on the reasoning involved. Lord Mance emphasised the importance of policy considerations when it comes to expanding on the duty of care. This is especially true when thinking about the positive actions of the police in the context of a negligence claim. Lord Hughes also made inroads on this front, but came at the issue much harder by pointing out that it is precisely because of policy considerations that there is no general duty of care imposed on the police when it comes to the investigation of crime. There is clearly a public benefit in allowing the police to actually do their job instead of constantly worrying about the prospect of legal action being taken against them. When it comes to evaluating this case, the rather nebulous concept of policy also has to be the central focus of our analysis. What are we really talking about when we speak of policy, or even the legal idea of opening the floodgates that gets thrown around so much when discussing the law of tort? In truth, this is not really about the notion that all of a sudden everyone is going to bring a claim against the police, but rather the courts are essentially stating that it is wrong to impose a duty of care in certain situations. This is a powerful tool that has to be exercised carefully by judges. On the one hand, it potentially hands, for better or worse, much more freedom to the police in what they do on a day-to-day basis, up and down the UK. On the other hand, that same tool can be used to ensure that law enforcement are consistently responsible for their actions to the public, who they serve, Whichever side of that argument you are on, most people would agree that this is the sort of debate that should be had before a decision is made. But the majority in this case led by Lord Reed, felt that this was not necessary because the general rules of tort that apply to everyone were sufficient. The problem with this is that those general rules of tort can be applied to all cases because that is exactly what they are, general rules. While I'm not a fan of how broad terms like policy can be used to justify political or moral viewpoints, this does give a degree of flexibility in the law and allows for its development over a period of time. Lord Reed's judgment suggests that he thinks this flexibility is unnecessary, where the law is clearly established. But that is the entire point of the precedent system and the court hierarchy. If a lower court is deciding a negligence claim and there is already authority on the subject, then this is what they will follow. But the idea of a fair, just and reasonable test allows for the law to adapt to society when such cases get appealed to a higher court, and it also permits a full exploration of the issues when the law runs into grey areas. Lord Mance was much closer to the mark when he said, quote, It would be unrealistic to suggest that, when recognising and developing an established category, the courts are not influenced by policy considerations. As lawyers or legal academics, we often like to think that what we do is an exact science, but that is a naive attitude and far from the truth. The legal system is an integral part of our wider society. And as such, the two are always influencing each other in a relationship that is often defined by friction, but ultimately allows for some movement. Seeking to ignore this, or worse, to prevent that movement, only leads to a disconnect between law and society. And when the legal system no longer reflects who we are, the demand for change only becomes more radical and urgent. Well thank you very much for tuning in to another episode of the UK Law Weekly Podcast and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. I'd also like to take the opportunity to give special thanks to Lothlan and A Lawyer 2018 who left very kind reviews of the podcast on iTunes. If you do get a chance to leave a review yourself or a rating that is always very much appreciated and it helps other people to discover the podcast. If you're also interested in some of the other work that I do, you can visit the website at uklawweekly.com and also the YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash Marcus Cleaver. I will be back with another episode next week, but in the meantime, Bye. bye!